Welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello everyone and welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The EDGE podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. Our goal is to discuss healthy business principles, have conversations on the business side of medicine, so that you and your practice can thrive, be profitable, and successful for years to come. My expertise in the medical field is focused on the revenue cycle management, which is coding, billing, reimbursement, auditing, and basically the entire RCM. But the business side of medicine is also about legal issues in healthcare, regulatory restrictions and flexibilities, especially what we've dealt with during the pandemic, practice management, financial accounting, and physician entrepreneurship when starting a practice, a private practice, or transitioning to a private practice from a hospital employee, and that's actually our topic today. To date, there's been a swing towards physicians becoming employed by hospitals, initially in joining an academic medical center or hospital system, and that may be a great start, but many physicians become disgruntled along the way and get stifled by the bureaucracy of these organizations. New physicians are being pushed into hospital employment through the lack of education on both the business side of medicine and the benefits to private practice. Their teachers work for hospitals, so the business side of medicine, the private practice, it actually is more suitable for physicians who have that entrepreneurial thinking, and but they'll have to learn how to do that. And we're here today to talk about this and how physicians can get back to their own private practice. Well, the only way to do that is to discuss this with fellow NSCHBC member, fellow healthcare consultant, Deborah Ferris. Deborah is the owner of Practice Liability Consultants in Napa, California. Deborah's firm consults with practices and physicians around the country, educating on success in private practice as well as assisting with administrative end of the business side of medicine. They tackle credentialing, hiring, and small practice problems and how to solve them. And of course, startups. Deborah, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Terry. I'm delighted to be here. And we are happy to have you. This is such a hot topic right now because not just the next generation of physicians, but I would think even physicians who've been in the hospital system for a while, they're just wanting some, I guess I call it, you know, work-life balance, overall options for compensation that maybe they don't get um, from a um, from a hospital situation. And, you know, is this the best time for them to be self-employed? And, and how do you make that transition? Well, it's amazing that I am still starting up new practices from scratch. So I have many physicians that are leaving the hospital systems, Kaiser, large groups, academic settings, and they, they want to try something different. And actually, it's really interesting is that I, um, pre-pandemic, was teaching in the Kaiser system for the family practice and internal medicine residents, and their academic people recognized that they needed to have exposure from for all aspects of uh different types of practices. So I was teaching my transition from training to practice to all of these um, primary care doctors, and they were fascinated. So um, you know, a lot of them thought that they were going to maybe go into Kaiser system for a few years and then come out. But some of them were very, uh, very, very intrigued. And of course, they all wanted to go right to the concierge system, which I told them, you, you know, you have to be in practice about 10 years to be able to transition to a concierge. But that is a fantastic opportunity for particularly primary care doctors, um, which we are having a big shortage of um, right now to go into private practice and then maybe stay with the insurance based or transition into the concierge model. 
So not to um, discount a doctor that comes out of school and, you know, obviously they need money because they've got all kinds of loans and things like that. And so one may start with maybe the Kaiser system and that just always pops up in my head because you, everybody knows them. But, you know, I think something that they may miss, and again, it's not to discount those systems because obviously we need those type of physicians. We need physicians in those systems. But isn't there a degree of autonomy that may be missing and that being able to, you know, um, make your own schedule? Is that what you're finding when doctors are there? And, and how do they break free from that when they've got that routine? Well, yes. And many of my physicians that want to go into private practice, they have had some experiences along those lines. So, for example, I have an um, a internal medicine subspecialty physician that left a hospital system and started his own practice. And that was primarily because um, he wanted to do things his own way. And um, you mentioned I have risk management as well as practice management background. And his uh, situation was is that he was strongly discouraged from referring out to, for example, UCSF and to hold referrals into the hospital system. And, you know, from my risk management background, a physician always has to advocate what's in the best interest of that patient. So a, a hospital system should not and cannot restrict a physician from referring or making advice and recommendations to seek care elsewhere. Um, that is a physician's duty and duty to warn. So that was his primary motivation for starting his own practice. And he has become so successful. He's expanding his space. He's going to hire another doctor or nurse practitioner. And that's the way that you can really make some significant money in um, private practice is that if you become so successful, you can hire these, well, they're called advanced practice clinicians now, not extenders. I almost blew it there, but they're, um, then you can make money from them too. And it, it really can expand the practice. So you don't have that opportunity in a hospital system. And indeed, most of the contracts in many situations, you have to supervise those people for literally no additional compensation. Yeah. And, you know, when we just mentioned one thing as far as uh, discouraged to refer out, you know, I would think that once you are trying to build a practice, one of your best assets are building relationships with referring physicians, making sure that you have those contacts so that, you know, your practice is more, and how do I put this, community? And so you're, you're known within the community. That's how your success is raised because people will want to, and other practitioners will want to refer to you, right? Yes, yes, indeed. And that's what's really fun about private practice is that you get to build those relationships. You have that, in some cases, cross-referral base. Of course, if you're primary care, the specialists are going to really court you to make sure that you're, they're getting your referrals. But it, it goes the other way, too. Is that, you know, again, because there's such a shortage of primary care doctors, a lot of uh, specialists are being asked, who do you... If, uh, who do you refer to for primary care? So for example, one of my uh, friends here in, in Napa is losing his primary care doctor and he's asking his cardiologist and everybody else, who are you going, who do you refer to for, or who would you recommend that I get for a primary care doctor? So I think there's a huge opportunity for primary care physicians now to go back into practice because there's such a shortage of them. And there's always that patient that's going to want that more personalized experience 
Um, and that doesn't even have to be concierge, but just someplace where they know the staff, they go in there, they're not like a big hospital system where you have to check in with registration and, you know, all that other stuff that you have to do. And they like that more personalized touch. And I think that there are always people that are going to want that experience. I would agree with you. It's interesting. My one of my daughter's friends, we she just got married this past weekend, and one of her and her maid of honor is in med school, and mm -hmm. she wants to um, go into a sub 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 specialty. It's a specialist specialty I've never even heard of before, and I just went, well, that's you know very admirable. I mean, I think that's great that you want to do that. I said, but right when you get out of school, what's your plan? She goes, I'm not sure where where to build from that, and I said, have you ever thought about primary care? And she's like. Really? And I go, you know, 10 years ago, we were like, oh, specialist, specialist, specialist. I said, but we do have a lack, like you said, of primary care. And from the pandemic, we've got a lot of physicians who are burnt out and saying that, you know, I'm done after this year. And I said, you know, you want to focus on adolescent medicine. That's a perfect place to do that and to start with that. But I have a question for you. Um, when it comes to, let's let's kind of back it up a little bit as far as starting out. So a, a doctor starting out, they're coming out of school, they've got, you know, loans, expenses and things like that. And then they're, they're trying to make a decision, private practice or going into, um, I don't know if we call them a hospital system, but I guess so, you know, that or an MCO or ACO, but basically an employee of a system. Where do you, where do you direct them and how do you get a feel, Deborah, in your experience, if the doctor has those operational skills, that entrepreneurial you know, um, mindset, because what I find, and I love my clients and everything, but sometimes the financial skills to run a business I mean, that's not taught to them. So how do you, how do you find that? Well, exactly. I can almost tell by somebody's personality anymore for doing this for almost 37 years, um, who is going to be successful in private practice and who isn't. And I have actually, when I have worked on the hospital side, I have indeed recommended in certain cases that I did not think that was a good candidate, for example, the hospital loan uh, program. And I think that's another thing that you can think about is that some hospital systems are still doing community hospital loans out there for private practice. Many of them are directing them to their own foundation. And as you know, in California, they can't directly employ the um, physician in California. It has to be through a foundation system. But in other states, they can directly employ them. But this is, um, you know, that, that hospital loan program is a, is a, it's like a gift of private practice. So what they can do, and I've done the pro formas for those for many, many years, is that if there's a need, which again, for primary care and in certain subspecialties and specialties, orthopedic surgery, for example, we're still underserved with ortho and cardiology to extent too, is that they can provide a fair market salary. It usually is at about the 50 percentile MGMA, Sullivan-Cotter, AMGA uh, level and overhead support. If they're going to go into private practice, they can do more, but if they're joining a group, they can only do new and incremental expense. But that, instead of going to the bank and having to um, borrow money for a loan, they've been pretty much given the gift of a private practice and all they have to do is pay tax on whatever the loan amount was. So maybe at the 25 to 35% rate, that's all they have to pay taxes on versus if they had to start a private practice and get a $200,000 loan, they'd have to pay back the 200,000 plus interest. 
This way, they'd only have to pay maybe 25 to 35% on 200,000. So that's an amazing program. Um, and I would definitely see if I was a physician, if that is available in the community that you're desiring. That's the number one way to make a real huge, um, uh, <laughs> not a very big investment. The other thing is going to find out if there are some retiring doctors in the in the, the community that you want to go to and buy their practice. So people are so afraid of that, but they shouldn't be because that's an existing ongoing business. Most banks, and there are certain banks that have large divisions that are specifically for physicians, and they will loan money to purchase that practice on the history of the prior practice, not even on the new doctor's credentials because they they assume that the medical degree is collateral, which is really amazing. So I don't think they should be afraid of taking that step. And, you know, I'm just going to sum up here is that I always kind of kid my physicians is that you put a dollar sign in front of math and they freak out like they don't understand it. And I always am telling them you did way harder math to get into medical school than this. <laughs> so there's... <laughs> And they laugh just like you did. Okay. And so they go, then they kind of get it. And I say, you know, there's only certain things that you need to learn about some financials, including, you know, your accounts receivable ratio that you know all too well, Terry, um, some human resources management, some operational things, and some marketing things. And that is not anywhere near what it takes to go through medical school. So just attending courses that we all present. Um, they can learn a lot on how to successfully run a practice. Yeah. And that's, it, oh my gosh, what great advice that is. It's funny when you mentioned looking for a retiree or a potential retiree physician, one of the things that, that I've done over the last 10 years, just by fluke is I've had some physical therapy practices that have been like, oh, can you help us because we're drowning and we're not doing, we're not sure why. And I'll go in and, and see where their problems is and, and kind of fix their financials and their revenue cycle management situation. And then I'll, but before I do that, I'm looking at it going, this has a lot of potential here and I'll buy them. And then I'll, you know, I'll actually invest and pur purchase it. And then I will go back and fix it. And then I'll, you know, work an agreement to either sell it to a physician or, um, keep it as a, an investment and, and keep it ongoing. So it's it's a similar thing where you, you look and see where, you know, maybe there's a retiree, maybe there's a practice that's struggling a little bit, but it has a really good location. And um, I think that can be definitely an opportunity. Now, but in saying that, you have to make sure you've got the skills to, if you've got a struggling practice you're going after that you can bring it up, otherwise it's gonna continue to struggle. The one thing I was gonna, you know, really bring up and, and ask you about this, cause I know this is definitely your expertise, and I actually, when I was doing a podcast with Chris uh, Zenger recently, we were talking about this and I know a lot of physicians come out of school, they a lot want to do private practice and they try to um, bring in their family to help them with all the accounting and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I hate to discount that, but if you start out on the wrong foot and you don't have the people that have the experience or the knowledge, let's just say, say knowledge, in that area, it can continue to go downhill. Don't you agree? Yes. And oh, I go through this all the time where they have, even for some basic things about incorporating or so forth, they have a, a family lawyer or something like that that knows nothing about healthcare. 
and they'll bring in those people and or they'll bring in their spouse or somebody as a manager. And that is a disaster usually. Not in every case, and I, I don't want to generalize, but if they don't have the background and experience, they're going to lose the respect of the rest of the staff and that's going to quickly go downhill. So they might think, oh, I'm going to save money by doing this. But I, I really believe that you should hire the best practice manager that you can afford and I always say, hire for attitude, train for aptitude. But somebody with experience, if you're just starting on a new practice, you should hire an experienced practice manager. And I always tell my clients, because I actually do recruiting for managers too, is that, um, is that that person will make or save you, if they're good, more than their salary. And that's actually one of my interview questions that I ask them. I say, tell me how you are going to make or save this doctor, um, your salary over the next year or two. And I want to see some good answers with that. And then I know that I have someone that thinks like that, but you really, I'm hiring relatives as it's nepotism and it doesn't work very well most of the time, particularly if I'm not experienced. Well, and it, it, like you said, it, it changes the morale of the staff that aren't related to the physician. So I have several clients who have brothers and children that are working there, you know, just got out of college and they don't know what to do. They're like, oh, we'll put them in the billing office. I'm like, no, let's not do that. <laughs> so, you know, let's put it, if you want to put them anywhere, put them at the front desk, if they're, you know, pleasant people, let them get a feel of that. But yeah, it, I just, um, I try, just trying to, for our listeners who are out there, you know, if you're a provider, you're a provider practice, you're an administrator try to minimize that's like i guess that's the best way to say it the input from family members and especially in the financial picture that you know if you don't have that that background that degree that education that experience um you're you're not you're, you're not helping your physicians it's just put it out out there because it's really not um going to help them in the long run so tr pivoting a little bit here so if a physician comes out and they'd say, okay, I want private practice, so let's move away from being the hospital system, would you recommend that they purchase a building, that they lease a building, that um, they try to find something um, in a medical center, or would it be better to find something where there's a Chick-fil-A in the parking lot? I mean, what what is the, the best location? Do not, you know, obviously cities are different, but what, what do you look for for a physician? Well, it's pretty difficult when you're just getting out of school to purchase a build, building as well as purchasing a practice. So that usually comes a little later, maybe five years after they've been in practice, unless they have family money or something like that. It'd be a different story. I, I always try to encourage people, if they can afford to do so, to purchase their own office suite. They don't have to purchase the whole building, but there's so many medical office condos because you know, throughout the years, um, you're going to be spending a lot of money on rent that could be going to really paying yourself and having some value. So I, you know, and it depends on, for example, you know, that's pretty difficult to do in San Francisco and Los Angeles, for example. But yet, you know, I see in the Central Valley of California, the doctors have these huge big medical office buildings because real estate and land is so much less expensive in certain areas than it is for others. So I think you have to look at that. But I, when I'm, and I do practice valuations and we always separate, I'm not a real estate broker. So 
um, I always tell them is the practice is one valuation and then the real estate is another. But I'm having, you know, believe it or not, I've got like three right now where one's an ophthalmology practice, one's a, a dermatology practice. And, you know, then I've got another one that's um, a, an aesthetic practice. And they all are offering the building if the person wants to do that too. So, but those are separate entities and need to be separate sales usually because there's very different valuation, you know, things and methodologies for each. Each. But yes, over the long run, it's a good idea. That's good. And also, I'm finding that because of the pandemic and everybody kind of pivoting to working from home, there are some real estate opportunities out there. So definitely take a look at what's available um, there could, because there's so many empty buildings right now. Oh, yes. So particularly in, Cal in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. So yeah, most of you, Deborah and I are both um, based in California. I'm in Southern California. She's in Northern California. So we're seeing a a little bit of a difference when it comes to cost on uh, the real estate side. And so a little bit different than the rest of the country, but, but yeah, definitely something to, to take a look at. So I noticed that a lot of my clients are starting to ask me questions about additional income opportunities as a private practice physician. They want to partner with an ASC, so an ambulatory surgery center, or they want to start an office-based lab, or they want to um, partner with an imaging center, even pharmacy services. What, what do you believe about that? Do you feel that they need to be in practice and get their feet wet for a while before they start, you know, expanding to that direction? Generally, yes, you know, because again, it's, it's, you want to get into the practice first and purchase that or get it going and then expand into these other entities. And yes, that's the difference between private practice and working for a system is that, you know, if you're, you know, I, for example, I have encouraged my orthopedic surgeons and ophthalmologists to partner together for an ASC and develop their own. And it's taken about 12 years and they're finally doing it. But, you know, that all that income was going to the hospital. And that is a great opportunity to make some passive income because you're getting the facility fee when you're doing that. So most of my surgical specialties have invested in an, an ambulatory surgery center. And that is not possible when you're in hospital employment. So that's a whole nother, you know, entity that you're going to make some additional money every single year plus your investment will probably um, increase in value. And so you'll get something on the way out. So, and I have some primary care doctors that example, uh, put in an urgent care in a, and I can't remember which uh, drugstore chain it was, very successful. And they've been running it for years. So there's a lot of other opportunities to make additional passive income, you know, from these other opportunities that you'll never get to do when you're in a hospital system. Or private equity. or Well, and that's the next thing, actually. I brought that up, um, equity partners. So we've gone from being an employee of a hospital system to starting your private practice and opportunities for, I guess, loan models as far as, you know, what they can do is, is to get some funding. What do you think about the equity partners? Because I've noticed that there's a lot of um, similar pressure as far as maintaining, you know, revenues to meet that, those expectations for those partners, because obviously they're investing to make money and profit. Um, what, what is a new physician or even a physician that says, has um, equity partners coming to them saying, hey, you know, come and uh, start your own practice or come out of the hospital system, we'll help you out. What, what should they look for and be cautioned about? 
Well, I have a lot of experience in this because, you know, I've been doing this for so long. I was I was involved with the first round of all this in the early 2000s and now once again. So, you know, it's I always say is that it, it's not a bad strategy to go with private equity if you're maybe have one to three years left in practice because it's a great retirement strategy and you only have to work for they want the existing physician to work for at least one or two, three years to help transition that practice. It's sort of a medium strategy for anybody three to 10 years. And I don't think it's a very good strategy at all for doctors that have 10 or more years of practice because they're giving up a lot of that potential um, money to do this. So, you know, I have done the cost benefit analysis for many physicians of showing them, for example, a dermatologist, she was making um, with, you know, with her benefits too. I mean, you know, running her auto and her travel and entertainment and all those other things, she was making close to 900,000 a year. Well, the private equity was going to pay her, I think it was 1.6 million up front. Well, you lose some of that in taxes. And then they were going to dump her down to a $300,000 salary. Oh, you know, because, <laughs> yes, because they want, they're going to do a fair market salary. So she's losing that huge amount of, you know, income. So over a three-year period, that's as much as the, the, um, the price that they were going to pay her. Wow. And so, you know, it, you have to go through the whole math once again, of explaining all that to show them. Now I'm not completely down on private equity. Like I said, I think it's actually an excellent strategy for retiring doctors. I don't believe it's an excellent strategy for new doctors. That's my, because what happens too, is that you alluded to this, Terry, is that they are going to want a return on their investment and they're going to work you harder. They're going to make you supervise more advanced practice clinicians, and they're going to keep you more at that fair market salary around the 50 percentile and things like that, which you don't have the opportunity to make that additional huge amount of money in certain specialties. So, you know, I think for some specialties, it's it's not a good strategy at all, given what you could do in private practice. And like I said, you know, if you hire a great manager, administrator, they can take that load off of you. And that's where I see physicians making huge mistakes is that they want to get too involved in the in the management side of the practice where they should be more the revenue producer people because they're the only ones that can do um, see the patients and do that. So that's my feeling about that. No, then that's actually that's really good information. It, it actually is interesting because that lesson can be applied to even what we do. I mean, I'm sure you've had people approach you to be a CEO of a company. I know mm -hmm. I've had people approach me and they're like, oh, you know, you need to partner with us. But then they're they make it and, you know, you and I are both independent. And so they want they want to take our business and then pay us a smaller salary, making it sound like it's going to be a great thing for us. And we're like, you, you can't know <laughs> you're, you're paying me less than what I'm generating. So no, that's not going to help. So yeah, so I, I can see how that can be a problem. Yes, that happened to me um, about 15 years ago, a CPA, huge CPA firm uh, wanted to absorb me into their business. And I thought about it for a little bit. I wanted to hear what they had to say. But in the end, I, I realized I love being independent. Me I too. love making my own decisions and deciding whether or not I want to work with, you know, I 
there's very few doctors that I've never, or I've said, I don't want to work with, but um, I, I like being my own boss. Me and too. I think you have to be a certain personality to do that, but there's a lot of satisfaction in doing that. And you mentioned work-life balance, which a lot of the younger doctors like, well, you can do that when it's your own practice, because you can decide you're going to take more vacation, maybe for less income. And for example, I, <laughs> I did an analysis for a, a primary care doctor she was wondering why she wasn't making very much money. So I showed her, I said, I gave her three alternatives and I showed her, this is what you can do. If you see, you know, work another hour per day and how many patients you're going to be able to see and what's that revenue, you know, and going through all the expenses. And this is probably what you're going to net for that. Or you can work the same amount of hours and just see a few more patients and not spend quite as much time with them, or you can continue to do what you're doing. And she looked at A, B, and C, and she finally said, I think I'm just going to do what I've been doing. You know, I like value my exactly. kids and my time and everything, but she was not unhappy anymore. And she wasn't complaining to the manager that it has to be the expenses or something like that. She realized that she had that choice and it was her choice to do one of three options. And then she was fine. Right. No, that's, and, and sometimes you do have to take a step back and, and just take a look, okay, what, where am I sacrificing? Where am I happy with it? What's happening? And, and is it worth doing X, Y, Z to make this much more money? But how much more time is that going to take? Because I'm seeing, again, going back to the um, private equity partners or to the hospital system, the doctors are like, when am I going to get out of taking call as much as I am? And I said, well, that's that's what private practice is. You know, you hire your, and I call them extenders too, mid-levels or your, you know, advanced practice providers, and they help take call. That's where they become um, very, you know, um, profit margin, help, you know, helpful, but also gives you that chance to have a life. So also part of that private practice situation as far as making sure that um, you do have that CEO of your life, if you will. So moving on to something that's come up, and obviously telehealth is a big part of my wheelhouse. You know, with technology and, you know, all the things that have opened revenues for physicians and obviously telehealth, one thing that I've noticed that doctors are trying to change a model to, and, and just bringing this up from a private practice standpoint and staying independent, I, I believe that doctors really need to look at the new technology to enhance the access to themselves and the focus, and that'll really help them sustain a profitable model. But can you speak to, and I do this, so it could be you know kind of beating a dead horse here, but maybe you can help out. Even though telehealth is awesome, I have so many providers that want to do it as the only thing they offer. I, I think that's wrong. I think that we need to include it as, as an offering, absolutely. You know, not only for bonuses, but for quality management and everything. But, but do you believe, as I do, that it's an extension of healthcare and, you know, we still need that face-to-face? -face? Or what, what is your opinion there? You may, you may differ. Well, no, I agree with you, Terry, is that I think there's certain specialties, for example, psychiatry, that could absolutely do telehealth. I mean, they're, they're, that's a perfect specialty to do that. And there might be some others, but I think he really, and well, I do have, I do have a dermatologist that has twins and she has gone to more telehealth than private, you know, seeing people in 
person because of her personal life. But I think you really have to evaluate and probably survey your patients to say and ask them, do you like just the telehealth only or would you like to see me live too? Because I think that's, you know, I think they have to have a choice. So certain specialties, I mean, you know, if you really have to examine a a bone or something like that, I mean, you really need to see somebody in person. But uh, for example, I, but come to think of it, I, I have an orthopedic surgeon that was thinking about maybe leaving a big group and starting his own small private practice doing some live, but a lot more telehealth because he recognized that, you know, during this pandemic, it was pretty profitable and he was able to see more patients for just about the same amount of money as when he saw them live in the office. So I think you have to figure that out and weigh it, but I would also be surveying my patients to find out what they uh, really wanted. Right. And I also try to tell and explain to physicians, I realize we're in the third year of the, and I'm air quoting pandemic, but remember the flexibilities we have now are not always going to be there. So just because you had some profitability during this public health emergency does not mean you'll continue to have that if it isn't expanded permanently. We're going to have some extensions, but nothing like what we have now. It's going to definitely tighten up a little bit. So pivoting a little bit to ancillary services, and this is how we'll kind of wrap up our discussion here. When doctors are incorporating certain ancillary services, let's say diagnostic services, I mentioned physical therapy possibly, um, just things that they can bring into the office, what do you talk to them about when searching out what will help them um, with their, because that's, I mean, almost 50 to 60% sometimes of their income are some of those ancillary services, not just uh, the, you know, encounters that they have with patients. Where do you tell them to start if they want to start small and build on that? Well, for example, I'm helping a pulmonary doctor right now develop a sleep medicine, and she really underestimated the expenses um, that were needed to get that going. So basically what I've done is create a pro forma, same thing, revenue and expense, capital budget of the things that she had to invest in. Plus, you know, she's going to have to have increased staff and um, she forgot that she's going to have you know, increased incremental expenses and every line item. So I went through every line item of her um, profit loss and showed her that these were all going to increase. And that, you know, so I think you have to good do good financial projections on this stuff and not just say, oh, I think I want to do it and not go through the exercise of really estimating. And it's in most cases, it takes three years to have a solid, um, business, even starting a practice or starting these ancillaries. So you have to have enough financial resources to sustain that time as you're building. And, you know, what she also forgot was that, um, as you well know, Terry, there's a lag in accounts receivable, right? Yes. So, (laughs) you know, she she just estimated that right from day one, month one, she was going to be bringing X amount of dollars. And I had to show her, no, it's going to be a build, plus you're going to have an AR lag. So there's going to be a substantial negative cash flow for those one to three months, you know, when you start up, that's going to all even out, but they have to plan for that. So I, I think good financial projections, if you can't do that, then, you know, having somebody help you with doing that, your CPA or, you know, a consultant like us or something like that, so that you can, you're really realistic about what this is going to take. And, and you know, Deborah brought up a good point as far as expense um, and cost benefit analysis on that. The other thing to keep in mind is if you have a good idea, and again, I'm talking to our listeners, 
such as uh, I know some doctors are like, oh, I want to do lifestyle management. Not everybody pays for that. Or they, you know, they want to bring in a nutritionist or they want to bring in a dietitian. And right now, just, I'll just talk Medicare. Medicare only pays for that for chronic kidney disease, diabetic patients, uh, renal failure. So it's also tied to chronic conditions, not necessarily because it's a good idea. Um, bariatric practices have a lot of dietitians and they're like, well, we just make sure that they um, talk to the patient, counsel them, and then we're going to charge an office visit. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, you're not. <laughs> I'm like, that's, you can't do that. That's, that's incorrect coding. That's not appropriate. Or we get, and they, they're like, well, where do I start? So what I try to explain to physicians as far as not having to put out a big expense you know, try to start with a diagnostic that doesn't cost a lot. So a six minute walk test, which just needs an extra staff member that can be done on a clipboard, uh, care management codes, you know, things like that, you know, as far as um, uh, non face to face work, checking in on patients that have two or more chronic conditions, and then maybe a simple diagnostic. If you want to bring in a treadmill, if you want to bring in an echo machine, and if you're you know, a orthopedic surgeon, EMG. So yes, those things cost money. So as Deborah said, you need to look at your volume and the diagnoses against what would be appropriate, but try to start small first. I, I think that's, that's probably the best way to at least start. Terry, I had an internal medicine practice that was capitated with HMO um, capitation. And, you know, in, in that case, <laughs> you don't want to see that many patients, you know, right. you're, that's a different story. So they actually did hire um, a, an RN um, dietitian type person, and she would do some education. It wasn't a charge to the patient, but they found that by providing that service, it reduced the amount of diabetic visits and things like that, which actually cost you money when you're capitated to see those patients over and over again. Exactly. Or not, yes. you know, so I think it depends on what your revenue stream is too. Right. Um, if you're going to hire those. And I agree. And actually that's a great point and a great way to kind of wrap up what we're talking about here. Some of the uh, people you hire, some of the ancillary services, some of the offerings to patients, they may not always be billable services, but on the back end, like Deborah said, you're you're helping yourself, especially if you're capitated or you, you don't want to see that many readmissions to patients to still offer the service. It may not be upfront billable where you're going to see an actual check for it, but you will see a savings cost. You will see a benefit to your practice um, by incorporating some of those things. I have a like a, a final comment, yes. and that is, is that um, you know, I, when doctors are thinking about maybe going to a hospital system or private equity, I have one huge question that I ask them always. And that is, how much do you like to be in control? And when they say, I'm a total control freak, <laughs> I always <laughs> say to them, how are you going to function being an employee where you're giving up that control? And they sit and think about it for a minute because I said, you know, you are going to be an employee and that means they can fire you too. And I had a surgeon, a general surgeon call me up just in shock because she was fired from a hospital system and she was, but I'm a doctor. And I said, well, yes, but you're an employee now. And that's a huge difference. And if they didn't do their homework, which is a really important point about knowing, did they project out enough need for your specialty in this system? They may, they may not 
be able to financially afford you. And if you're not productive, which they will set productivity goals for you and you have to meet those. And they'll generally, the compensation is usually 80% of what the median level is. And then you have to do 80% of the work RVUs for that baseline salary. And then there's a a bonus per work RVU uh, for every work RVU over that baseline. So you really have to understand the compensation formula, what's expected of you, how they're going to pay it. And are they expecting you to be at, for example, the 60th percentile productivity level, but yet paying you at the 25th percentile Uh, work dollars per work review, which I have seen that in some hospital systems. So you really have to know what you're doing when you're evaluating those things. And then the other final comment I might make about that is you alluded to it in the beginning about the bureaucracy, and we didn't talk about that. But that is a a real definite feeling, um, especially for those doctors who are in private practice, then went to a system. And I've had many come back out again, primarily for that reason. And I had a family practice doctor say, I lost it with the fifth meeting on where to put an exit sign at the end of the hall. (laughs) And she said, I just said, I have to go back into private practice. that That was her tipping point, as I always call it. And then another one said his tipping point was he had a dyslexic medical assistant that was assigned to him. And because it was a huge hospital system, firing that person was like going through the union, you know, mentality. And so he was spending all these additional hours at the end of the day, rechecking all of her prescriptions that she had called in because he was absolutely paranoid that she was making mistakes and transposing numbers. And finally said, I just, I can't handle this anymore. And I have to go back into private practice. So I always say, talk to other people first, before you go into those systems, find out what the culture is, find out what the expectations are are of you, um, your productivity levels, your supervisory levels, all that has to factor into this before you make those decisions. That, that's great advice. You know, just the comment you made about the exit sign reminds me of a homeowners association, me, me, association meeting I attended where two hours just trying to figure out if the mailboxes should be blue or black. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> well, <laughs> another story, though, when I knew that there was a dysfunctional medical group, when I reviewed the minutes, and it took them a year to try to figure out a logo. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, boy. Okay. So does private practice sound good for you? Well, (laughs) definitely something to strongly consider to just keep your autonomy, really trying to, and and I mentioned it before, be the CEO of your life, you book your own, you know, own your book of business, manage your time, time is money, and just make sure that uh, you're the one that's that's in control of that. So we would like to thank Deborah for being on our podcast today, and her insights into this very timely topic. Thank you. So we hope our episode today answered some of those tough questions and armed you with a new knowledge you didn't have before. You can reach Deborah Ferris at nichbc.org. Go to find a consultant tab. You can type in her first name uh, and her last name, P-H-A-I-R-A-S, even comes up with her first name, Deborah, D-E-B-R-A. And uh, she'd be more than happy to to talk with you and uh, consult with you and see what your needs are. So in closing, listeners, just a reminder that the NSCHBC has monthly free webinars that you can find on the education table of the nschbc.org website. We also have Medicare quarterly webinars, giving you all of the updates and regulations, changes needed for your practice, 
And we'd also like you to consider membership with the NSCHBC if you want trusted resources to answer these burning medical questions also with the business of medicine that come up every day. So that's it for us today, everyone. Please join us next month for another episode of the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. My name is Terry Fletcher. Until next time, everyone make it a great day, a great rest of your month, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at nschbc.org, the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.